Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts again as we just come before the word, shall we? Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for this book that you have given us. This declaration of Jesus. Lord, we're told that the volume of the book speaks of Jesus. And Lord, as we look on every page, we see with greater clarity, greater detail, the one who has redeemed and saved us. And Father, as we study this morning, we pray that you open our understanding. Lord, just give us ears to hear, we pray. And we pray you speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, he is our teacher. We just want to be open to that which he has to say to each one of us this morning. Father, we thank you that the word is living and powerful. And Lord, may it transform us, Lord, by our our thinking, being brought in line with your word, we pray. And so, Father, we just give you this time. Lord, bless my words. And Lord, may we grow together in knowledge and grace. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are journeying through the book of Kings. And the portion we're going to be looking at this morning, I think, is one of my favorite blocks of Scripture. You know, sometimes how it is that you maybe have a, a nice long bath and afterwards you just feel so kind of cleansed and refreshed. Or maybe you, uh, I, some of you know, I got a juicer for Christmas and uh, I've kind of taken to uh, taking my fruit in that way because I'm particularly lazy and I don't tend to eat fruit normally. Um, and I've probably had more fruit in the last, you know, uh, six, seven weeks or so than I have probably in the last, well, the whole of the rest of my life put together. Um, and, you know, when you have a nice fruit smoothie, you just feel kind of good. And it's, you know, sometimes when we just get into God's Word and we just soak in God's Word, it's just the same. But it does it even more importantly for our spirits, not just our physical frame. And it's such a good thing sometimes just to spend time in the Word, allow the Word to minister to you. You know, and the Bible is incredible because sometimes we read things and we study things and we draw out, but other times we just read the text. And without us even really understanding necessarily, God still speaks to us. God still will put those things in our hearts that will come to our remembrance later. You know, maybe in a time of need or something, the Lord, the Holy Spirit will just bring our remembrance to a particular passage or something that we read. When at the time we read it, it didn't really impact us in any way. But this is just the beauty of, of God's Word. To remind ourselves where we've journeyed from, David's reign has come to an end. Solomon has now ascended to the throne and put down all opposition, uh, most notably that from his stepbrother, Adonijah, who'd tried to take the throne, um, but obviously that bid failed. And God had wanted Solomon to be the king, had already said to David that Solomon was going to succeed him. Um, and then God grants Solomon wisdom. As we saw last time, God asked Solomon to ask anything he wished, anything he wanted. And Solomon asked for wisdom that he would rule God's people well. And as a result of that, he's also given a great wealth and prosperity, unlike anybody else uh, the world has known. And Solomon is now set to commence his great commission that was given to him by God. Now, on the surface, you may think it's David that handed down the, the keys, as it were, to go and do this work of building the temple. But you actually find it's God was the one who commissioned Solomon to do it. David wanted to do it, and God steps in. Nathan, originally, and David says, I want to do this. And Nathan says, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, off you go. And then God checks Nathan and says, you should have asked me first. And then the following day, Nathan has to go back to David and says, oh, you know what we talked about yesterday? Well, actually, you're not going to do it. God has said, you're not to do it, but your son will do it. 
And the reason for this, as we'll see as we go through, is because David had shed blood and so on. And God wanted Solomon uh, to do this work of building the temple. Namely, to build a house for the Lord. Now, we need to remind ourselves... Let's just look in First Chronicles uh, 28. We read there, And thou, Solomon my son, know now the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. And then it goes on in verse 10, it says, Take heed now, for the Lord has chosen thee to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. So this is the charge that David gives, but makes it clear that this work is to be given um, to Solomon. It's God that's ordaining this work to be done. But we need to remind ourselves also Isaiah 66, the first couple of verses there we read, Thus says the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you built for me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things is my handmade, and those things have been, says the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. You know, in one sense it was a place where uh, it would be the focal point of the nation, this temple, as the tabernacle should have been. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't the case um, through their disobedience. But the temple would become this focal point, this place where they would look and they would remember God. And God said that he would dwell there. The Shekinah glory, as we'll see this morning, comes down as uh, Solomon is offering up his sacrifices. But it was just a building. And God really, as we see here, is saying that he will dwell with the one that is poor and of a contrite spirit. You know, and that really is speaking very much of those who come to know their own frailty, their own unworthiness before a holy God and recognize the need for a saviour. The whole of the law is there to show us that we're sinners and that we need a saviour. And when we come to that place, that's the poverty that is being spoken of there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, the contrite spirit, those that tremble at God's word. And of course we now live in an age where one of the great promises of God has been fulfilled, that he's given us his Holy Spirit. And God dwells in human vessels. What an incredible thing that is. But let's look this morning at this. Now just something else I want to kind of mention and clear up. Now we're told in Genesis chapter 15 that the land that is to be promised to Abraham would be from the great river, the river Euphrates, this one here. And this of course we know goes down in Iraq these days, uh, not far from Baghdad. Uh, goes right down the side of Babylon and this is where uh, Babylon was situated on the banks of the Euphrates. Um, but also this land then that Israel was to be given was to the whole of this region and to the river of Egypt. Now some think it's the Nile, others think it's this wadi here, um, possibly this is the one. Uh, but either way, this whole of this area was to be Israel's and that is what's promised to Abraham in Genesis 15. Now the reason I highlight that is because some people think that Solomon had that and we've already achieved this fulfillment of prophecy but not the case see Solomon's rule extended from the Euphrates to this river in Egypt to this border we see that we saw that mentioned last time and the extent of Solomon's kingdom though did not fulfill the Abrahamic covenant why well because the countries in that territory only paid tribute to Solomon and they're not assimilated into the nation of Israel. You see, Israel had control over the region. Those nations pay, paid tribute. And actually, this is where Solomon then amasses this great incalculable wealth. Because all these other nations are put to tribute. But that land never actually became Israel's during that time. 
So this promise to Abraham is still yet to be fulfilled. And of course this is the contention that we see going on in the world today. The question mark over the land of Israel, the rights to the land, and so on. And of course that will never be settled until Jesus comes back and he will establish the throne of David. He will claim the land that was promised to Abraham. That will be theirs, maybe Israel's during the millennial reign of Christ. Now what we're going to look at, um, see how far we get with this this morning, but um, really all of these chapters from 5 through 8 deal with the temple. So first, a short chapter in chapter 5, but the building preparations, then the construction of the temple, a little bit about Solomon's palace, and then the furnishings for the temple, and then finally the dedication of the temple itself. And this incredible chapter, First uh, Kings chapter 8. So let's make a start and see how far we get with this. So Hiram, king of Tyre sent his servants unto Solomon, for he had heard that they had anointed him king in the room of his father, for Hiram was ever a lover of David. So David and Hiram uh, had been friends. And so Hiram sends ambassadors now. And Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, Thou knowest how that David my father could not build a house unto the name of the Lord his God, for the wars which were about him on every side, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. So there is neither adversary nor evil occurring. And behold, I purpose to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke unto David my father, saying, Thy son, whom I will set upon thy throne uh, in thy room, he shall build a house unto my name. Now, there's some various things we need to just be aware of here, and just to just see how this pans out, because this isn't just history. This is the wonderful thing about the Word of God. It's speaking to us right now about our own situation also. You see, God had ordained that David, who was the shepherd king, was not to build the temple because he'd been, uh, he presided over a time of war and had shed blood. But once peace had been purchased by the shed blood and so on, the temple, the place that God himself would dwell, should be raised up. Now, that speaks of what Christ has accomplished. Christ came. His blood was shed. Christ came, as it were, in a time of war and defeated the enemy. But now we're in a time of peace. We've been given the Holy Spirit and we have become the temples of the living God. An incredible parallel that you see and it goes all the way through this portion we look at. Verse 6 carries on. Now therefore, command thou that they hew me cedar trees out of Lebanon, and my servants shall be with thy servants, and unto thee will I give hire for thy service, according to all that thou shalt appoint. So Solomon is saying, we're going to pay, we're going to have some of your people helping us, and I'm going to send some of my people up, and we're going to chop these trees down so we can get this building project underway. For thou knowest that there is not uh, among, any, uh, among, among us any that can um, skill to hew timber like unto the Sidonians. And it came to pass that when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, which has given unto David a wise son over this great people. And Hiram said to Solomon, saying, I have considered the things which thou hast sentest to me for, and I will do all thy desire concerning timber of cedar and concerning timber of fir. Um, and uh, so my servants shall bring them down from Lebanon unto the sea and I will convey them by the sea and floats unto the place that thou shalt appoint me and I will cause them to be discharged there and thou shalt receive them and thou shalt accomplish, accomplish my desire in giving food for my household 
So what's going to happen is the trees are going to be chopped down, they're going to be taken to a seaport um, somewhere up the Mediterranean coast, um, and then not far from, or probably even Tyre itself, uh, and then it's going to come down on these floats, they're going to float these logs down the sea, obviously it's the easiest way to transport these heavy logs, uh, and then somewhere off the coast of uh, Israel, um, they're going to be then received and then taken there, possibly even Joppa, uh, a well-known seaport, and then they're going to be taken from there to the area of the temple where obviously then they're going to be used in this construction work. But Hiram's uh, request is, okay, we can do all this, but what I want you to do is to provide food for my household. Now, of course, we know even to this day how Israel is such an incredible producer of food and fruit and so on. You've only got to go to Israel, and it's amazing. You just go past these huge green fields, and there's bananas, and there's all sorts of other things that are growing there. And Israel, as we know, are one of the largest fruit exporters in the world. And uh, it's exactly what has been prophesied, of course. Um, that Israel would become this place, uh, that place that had become barren, and it had whilst Israel were out of the land. But then from 1948 onwards, the land had just burst into life. But even back then, it was a, time, it was a place of uh, uh, great blessing. It was, it was, of course, this place that God had said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that their descendants would go. It would be a land of milk and honey. Milk meaning that it would be a place for the cattle. Um, the cattle obviously produced the milk, so there would be plenty of grass then to feed on. And honey, uh, well, honey obviously comes from, from the bees. The bees need the plants and the flowers and so on. So the whole land, the whole idea of this milk and honey um, was that it would be a land that was rich, uh, just just bursting uh, in life. Now, again, notice that the material for the temple came, if I may put it this way, out of the world. It wasn't from Israel. It was kind of Gentile material that was being brought for the construction and the work in the temple. And it's just as for, for us the same. We've come out of the world and we are being transformed into his temple, the dwelling place of his spirit. And it's interesting as you look at the whole of this process, you see again the way that God has worked in our lives. And we'll see more of this as we go through. So Hiram gave Solomon cedar trees and fir trees according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 measures of wheat, um, for food and um, to his household and 20 measures of pure oil thus gave Solomon to Hiram year by year so a huge amount uh, if you want to dig into your commentaries you can find out the exact amounts um, that uh, the commentators reckon were actually given here but plenty of food plenty of oil for his household and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon and they too made a league together as King Solomon raised a levy out of all Israel, and the levy was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month by courses. A month they were in Lebanon, two months at home, and Ad- Adoniram uh, was over the levy. So this individual is appointed. So we've got 30,000 men that are appointed to get on with this work, um, and 10,000 at a time would go down to Lebanon, would get into the forest, would go down helping Hiram's men chop these trees down and so on. It sounds like a pretty good job to me, that, because you get one month on and then two months off. Um, I quite like that. I'm guessing it was hard work. It no doubt would have been hard uh, in the heat of the day, dropping trees down. But then to get two months off, I think that would be quite nice. But anyway, this is what they did. Uh, Solomon had threescore and ten thousand, uh, the bare burdens, and fourscore thousand hewers in the mountains, beside the chief of Solomon's officers, which were over the work, three thousand and three hundred, which ruled over the people that wrought in the work. So we've got seventy thousand men that were going to be carrying things, basically. Um, and then 80,000 to cut the trees. And then we've got those that were in charge over them, the officers, as I referred to, um, 3,300. 
And the king commanded, and they brought great stones, costly stones and hewed stones, to lay the foundations of the house. And Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them, and the stones squarers, so they prepared timber and stones to build the house. Now just one other observation here. Because notice we're told that they are great stones. And they were big stones. We'll talk about that a little bit later if we, we come on to that. And costly stones. And huge stones. They're being cut out. But again, this is speaking of you and I. Because great stones. You know, God saw us as so valuable that he didn't spare his only begotten son. That's the value. These great stones that were taken. The costly stones. The highest price was paid to purchase us, to bring us out of the, the quarries, in a sense, that we were in. These huge stones we're told about, literally cut from out of this world. That's us. And we're taken to this place where we're being formed and moulded into that building that God is building. We'll comment more in a moment. And it takes us straight into chapter 6, and it just carries on here. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziph, which is the second month. So typically April time will be considered their first month of the year. Um, so you're talking about kind of uh, April, May time uh, here. Uh, that it began to build the house of the Lord. Now just a comment, because we could actually spend probably a few weeks going through this verse. We're not going to. Um, but this is one of the most important chronological verses in Scripture. Um, when you see dates and times and things like that, um, you, know, you need a reference point. Well, this is a really important one because we're told, again, the 480th year after the children of Israel would come out of the land of Egypt. So we're given a kind of a key marker point. And there's some great books um, that have been produced which go through this. There's a lot of um, debates amongst the scholars. One of the best I've found is this one, The Chronology of the Old Testament by Dr. Floyd Nolan Jones. Um, it's a very heavy reading, but it's some fantastic insights in there uh, as he just digs into the dating and just shows the accuracy of all these things. And of course, it's one of the areas that critics love to jump on and they say the Bible's wrong because these dates don't fit with secular history and so on. And um, well, people like uh, Floyd Nolan Jones that have actually really looked at it um, have just proven without question that the Bible is absolutely correct when it comes to these details and the dates and so on um, but just uh, if you want to mark it this verse very very important from a chronological point of view and kind of linking these things together but we carry on for now and we read in the house which King Solomon built for the Lord the length thereof was three score cubits and the breadth thereof is 20 cubits, the height thereof 30 cubits. Okay, so we're dealing with about 90 feet by 30 feet by 45 feet uh, is the, the, the floor plan of this building. And the porch before the temple of the house, 20 cubits and length thereof according to the breadth of the house. And 10 cubits was the breadth thereof before the house. And for the house he made windows of narrow lights. This is right at the top to let light in. And against the wall of the house he built chambers round about. Now, you may have uh, seen before, we've looked elsewhere uh, other times, but these chambers then are put around the outside of the temple, eventually become storehouses where the priests would put their own personal idols. And there's all sorts of studies that you can go off into um, from this uh, to lead into very interesting uh, studies of looking at our own lives and the way that we um, have these idols. I mean, again, our body is a temple and there's a, a definite correlation between all of these things. Um, 
uh, both of the temple and the oracle, that's talking of the Holy of Holies. So when we see this word oracle, uh, translated that way in the King James, it's just referring to the Holy of Holies. And he made chambers round about. Uh, the nethermost chamber was five cubits broad, and the middle was six cubits broad, the third was seven cubits broad. For without, uh, uh, in the wall of the house, he made narrowed rests about them, that the beams should not be fastened in the walls of the house. And the house, when it was in building, was built of stone, made ready before it was brought thither. Now, notice here. So that there was neither hammer, nor axe, nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in the building. Now, this is an incredible statement. Because it's saying that the stones that were used for the building of the temple were all cut and shaped and everything done before it was brought to the temple mount. And when it's then brought there, they're ready just to slot into place. Now, some of you will have been to Israel, you've seen some of the stones that are there, and um, I had the opportunity back a few years ago to go to Israel, and you literally cannot get a sheet of paper between these stones. They're just laid on top of each other. Uh, They are absolutely huge. Some of them are over 100 tons in weight. Um, But these stones, again, all cut perfectly and brought to the Temple Mount. Ready, so that not a, a sound is heard. Now, I love this quote by Spurgeon. I have read this before, but it's so applicable because it's speaking exactly of this portion of scripture we're looking at. Now, Spurgeon was just quoting from Zechariah 6.13. Uh, and the verse there reads, He shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory. And Spurgeon's quote is this, Christ himself is the builder of his spiritual temple, and he has built it on the mountains of his unchangeable affection his omnipotent grace and his infallible truthfulness but as it was in solomon's temple so in this the materials need making ready there are the cedars of lebanon but they are not framed for the building they are not cut down and shaped and made into those planks of cedar whose odiferous beauty shall make glad the courts of the lord's house in paradise there are also the rough stones still in the quarry They must be hewn, thence and squared. All this is Christ's own work. Each individual believer is being prepared and polished and made ready for his place in the temple. But Christ's own hand performs the preparation work. Afflictions cannot sanctify, excepting as they are used by him to this end. Our prayers and efforts cannot make us ready for heaven apart from the hand of Jesus who fashions our hearts aright. As in the building of Solomon's temple, there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the house, because all was brought perfectly ready for the exact spot it was to occupy. So it is with the temple which Jesus builds. The making ready is all done on earth. I love that because it just kind of puts perspective and context to the problems we experience. You see, we are being shaped. The Lord is allowing those trials that we go through to get us ready for things that we haven't even yet imagined. And just as these blocks of stone, just as these cedars and so on are being cut and being prepared and just brought to the Temple Mount and put in place. So the Lord is doing that kind of work in our lives also. In First Peter Chapter 2, we read there, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. If so, 
uh, if so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. And you also as lively stones, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now again, we're told that we are being built up into a spiritual house. You know, and it may be that the block that you are being prepared to go next to at the moment, you wouldn't fit next to. You'd rub up and you'd kind of annoy each other and so on. We don't know what God's got planned and how it's going to work. And God needs to knock off a few rough edges sometimes with us, doesn't he? And he's doing this work. And that's why we should never grumble when we go through trials. We should, as James says, consider it joy. It was all part of God's wonderful plan in this building that he is crafted, this spiritual house. So we carry on. And we're told the door for the middle chamber was in the right side of the house. And they went up with the winding stairs into the middle chamber and out of the middle into the third. So outside we have these kind of three stories. These um, chambers that are around the edge of the temple, uh, a kind of a three-story arrangement uh, of uh, just kind of these chambers around the outside of the temple. And so he built the house and finished it and covered the house um, with beams and boards of cedar. And this is just the preliminary. We're going to get to the decorative part in a while. And then he built chambers against all the house, five cubits high, and they rested on the house uh, with timbers of cedar. And the word of the Lord came unto Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which thou art building, if that will walk in my statutes and execute my judgments and keep all my commandments to walk in them, then will I perform my word with thee, which I spoke unto David thy father. So in the midst of this work, Solomon's got this project underway. God comes and speaks to him. And really, it's just kind of, let's get the focus here. This isn't just about building a building. This is about seeking God with our whole heart. And for us, it's not just about going through things, ticking things off a list. Not about just coming to church every Sunday. You know, as God gives this little kind of reminder to Solomon, midway through the project, that remember, it's about me. Well, God so does the same with us. That we're to walk in his statutes, execute his judgments, we're to keep his commandments, we're to walk in them, we're to walk by faith, not by sight. And God says to Solomon, I'll perform my word with thee, which I spoke unto David thy father. And of course, we looked a few weeks ago at the promises of God. How many promises are there just waiting for us? That through obedience, we could become beneficiaries of these incredible, wonderful promises that God has given to bless our lives. Psalm 1 is a great example of those promises that are there. Speaking of an individual whose life would prosper, everything he does will prosper. Doesn't that sound the kind of life you want to lead? But we're told, for those kind of individuals, in fact, let's just, just, just have a detour, shall we? Let's just turn to someone for a moment. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seed of the scornful, so they're the things that we're not to do. And there's a progression, there's a downward progression. Walking in the counsel of the ungodly. You know, it's an easy thing to kind of go along with the way of the world. And kind of walk in their counsel. Standing in the way of sinners 
It's kind of a, a downward step. Kind of we stand around with them. You may have, you know, it reminds me of Paul as he's standing there as the stones are being thrown at Stephen. Just standing in the way. We don't necessarily, from the text, it doesn't appear that Paul threw any stones. Paul was standing there looking after the coats. But you know, we can do that. We can just stand there. And we justify to ourselves that we're not actually involved, we're not doing it. But the next step from that point is then we end up sitting in the seat of the scornful. Even rejecting God's word and God's wisdom. And of course the devil's favourite lie, did God really say that? But we're told, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. So this is the way that we're to be. I mean, it starts, blessed is the man that. And we're told that we should meditate in God's law, day and night. And he should be like a tree. This is the, 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 the outcome of that. He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. And it goes on to tell us that of course, that's not the way it is with the, the ungodly. You know, a reminder just of the fact that we should be seeking God, not just the service of God, not just doing things, not just getting a job done, but just as God reminds Solomon here, that God himself should be the object of all of our effort, all of the things that we do. Verse 13, God carries on, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. And the Solomon responds, So Solomon built the house and finished it, and he built the walls of the house within with boards of cedar, both the floor of the house and the walls uh, of the ceiling. And he covered them on the inside with wood and covered the floor of the house with planks of fir, again, fir trees, the, the wood from. And he built 20 cubits um, on the sides of the house, um, both the floor and the walls with boards of cedar. He even built them uh, for it within, uh, even for the oracles. He's talking again of the Holy of Holies, even for the most holy place. And the house, that is the temple before it, was 40 cubits long. And the cedar of the house within was carved with knops and open flowers. Um, all was cedar. There was no stone seen. So the stones are used for the construction work. And then on top of the stones, we've got this wood panelling going round. And then we'll see all of that is going to be overlaid with gold as well. And a huge amount of gold is used. And again, notice here that no stone seen. I think this is interesting because although the stones were still there, they were unrecognisable. They've been transformed. And it really, I think, is the same of us. You know, we're told that we are living stones being built together in this temple that God is building, that Jesus is building. But in this temple, there was no stone seen. And I think the same with us. You know, it's not that we lose our identities in Christ. That's not what it's saying. But it's no longer about us. It's what John the Baptist said. He said, I must decrease, but he must increase. And in the, the temple that God is building, the spiritual temple, it's not about us. We're not seen. We're not the object. It's not about us. But also, there's nothing of that earthly, fleshly nature seen either. What's seen is that which is covered over with these beautiful things that God has created, these, these cedars. But then even that, we're overlaid in gold. Let's carry on. And the Holy of Holies, the oracle, he prepared in the house within to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So this is the Ark of the Covenant. 
this box that Moses had made of acacia wood and overlaid that with gold uh, where the Ten Commandments had been put and so on. They'd carried around in the wilderness and but eventually been put into the tabernacle and then finally David brings the tabernacle and brings the ark to, this, uh, to Jerusalem. Well now this temple is being built and the Holy of Holies which is going to be the final resting place is the intention for this ark. And the oracle, again the Holy Holies, in the fore part was 20 cubits in length and 20 cubits in breadth and 20 cubits in the height thereof. And by the way, if you look at the measurements, you'll see that this is just the same measurements as the tabernacle except multiplied. Okay, so it's just the, the same dimensions that were used for the building of the tabernacle and for the, for the Holy of Holies there. It's the same idea in the temple, it's just larger, but the same proportions that are used. Um, and he overlaid it with pure gold and so covered the altar uh, which was of cedar so Solomon overlaid the house within with pure gold and he made a partition by the chains of gold before the oracle and he overlaid it with gold now once again this is the work that God is doing in our lives so we've been hewn from the world we've been brought out of the world and God is doing this work in us and again in his temple all of those characteristics those things of the world disappear they're not seen our nature changes in christ and ultimately we're covered in pure gold and that's what god is doing with us this is this incredible work this value that is now upon us is so much greater in a sense than previously because we've been transformed we've been made into the likeness of christ and that's what god is doing this work he's doing with us and the whole house he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the house. Also the whole altar uh, that was by the oracle he overlaid with gold. And within the oracle he made two cherubims. Now just like it was with the ark uh, when it was in the tabernacle, we have these cherubims either side. So now we've got these two cherubims, um, made, uh, two cherubims of olive uh, tree, each ten cubits high. And five cubits was uh, the one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the other wing of the cherub, from the uttermost part of the one wing unto the uttermost part of the other were ten cubits. So given this um, measurement, uh, the, the span of the wings of these kind of creatures, these models that were being uh, built in the Holy of Holies. A uh, cubit, by the way, typically, uh, if you're not familiar, really familiar, was seen as being the length from the, from the tip of your finger to the tip of your elbow. Uh, and most people tend to go around about 18 inches as being the standard length for a cubit. So if you want to work these things out yourself, you just need to um, times a cubit by 18 to get, uh, or to get your by 18 inches and you can work out um, all these dimensions and things some actually think that could have been more some suggest 21 inches but it tends to be 18 uh, most commentators tend to stick with to give an idea of the sizes uh, if you want to sit and work this out yourself um, the other cherub was 10 cubits uh, both the cherubs uh, were of one measure and one size these identical creatures either side then of the ark of the covenant that's going to sit within the holy of holies the height of one cherub was 10 cubits and so uh, was it of the other uh, cherub, and he set the cherubim within the inner house, and they stretched forth the wings of the cherubims, so that the wing of the one touched the wall, and the wing of the other cherubim touched the other wall, and their wings touched one another in the middle of the house. So these heavenly creatures that are being uh, uh, fashioned here, um, they would literally have these wings spread out. One was touching the outside wall, and then in the center they'd both be touching each other over where the ark was to sit underneath them. 
And he overlaid the cherubims with gold, and he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures and cherubims and palm trees and open flowers within and without. I mean, this must have been so wonderful to look at. And the uh, floor of the house he overlaid with gold within and without. And for the entering of the oracle, he made doors of uh, olive tree. The lintel and the side posts were a fifth part of the wall. The two doors also were of olive trees, and he carved upon them carvings of cherubims and palm trees and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold and spread gold upon the cherubims and upon the palm trees. So also made he for the door of the temple posts of olive tree, a fourth part of the wall. And the two doors were a fir tree, and the two leaves of the one door were folding, and the two leaves of the other door were folding. So again, just talking about the door frame and the doors themselves uh, made of this wood. And again, all of this becomes covered in gold. And he carved there on cherubims and palm trees and open flowers. So this ornate work is being done, carving all this wood. And uh, covered them with gold fitted upon the carved work. And he built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. And in the fourth year was the foundation of the house of the Lord laid in the month Ziph. Okay, this is when it starts. And in the eleventh year, in the month Bull, which is the eighth month, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof and according to all the fashion of it. So he was seven years in building it. Now, interestingly, of course, seven in Scripture numerically always seems to uh, mean complete. Whenever we find seven, it always seems to be used in that context. And, of course, it happens to be by God's design that we get to this place seven years and this building is complete. Now, uh, just to give you an idea, this is a picture, uh, an artist's rendering of what the temple would have been like. Now, we'll look, um, maybe next time we'll see how we get on in a moment. Um, but this, this big laver, this bath was made um, for the priests uh, to wash in. There were these kind of carved bulls that were made that it sat on. And then they had another ten of these smaller lavers for, for washing uh, around the temple. Uh, these again for the priests for, to keep them ceremonial clean so they could wash their hands and so on. We then have um, the brazen altar. This was the altar where all the sacrificing would take place. Uh, all the, uh, the bulls, the lambs, the goats, or everything that was offered in sacrifice would be brought up here and burnt on this altar. As you go into the temple yourself, these are the doors that we were just seeing uh, described for us. Uh, and the doors would open up, obviously as doors do. That's a redundant comment, apologies for that. Um, and you go in, the floor was made then of gold, covered over, uh, overlaid in gold. All the walls were overlaid in gold. Up the top here you had these windows, as we mentioned earlier. But we've also got, then you can maybe just about see here, uh, these menorahs. There was ten lampstands. There was five one side, five the other. Now when they were alight within the gold that was in there, this place must have been absolutely brilliant on the inside to look. And then you get up. These are the storehouses, the three levels, if you know, I mentioned, the three levels of the storehouse uh, and so on uh, that were around the side, these chambers. Um, and then we have these steps that go up into the holy place. And then you can just about see, let's kind of, oops, let's go the right way. Where have we gone? Let's go back one more. Okay, so if we can zoom in on that section there, we're going to try and pick that out. So we've got these cherubim here, um, with again the wings touching the walls either side, and then the, the kind of wings touching each other, and in the centre of them will be the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and again, what you then have in front of here will be a curtain, the veil of the temple. And of course that veil is the one that eventually is torn in two on the day that Jesus is crucified. 
symbolizing that our access into the holy place uh, is now there because a way has been made. Um, This altar here would be the incense altar. Um, where again um, incense would be offered up and the house would be filled with smoke typically because of this incense would be offered so sometimes a picture makes it easy to understand but that's what we've just gone through looking at those details and the following chapters actually will give us a bit more information Um, let's just take you through just a a little section of the next bit because we then just tanked a little bit and we look at the royal palace and the first 12 verses of chapter 7 give us that and we're told that Solomon uh, was building his own house 13 years and he finished all his house now it's interesting because um, it could be that he started his house first and his house would have taken longer because he wouldn't necessarily have had all the workmen and so on on it. Um, but the Lord's house took seven years. Um, Solomon's house uh, takes that, that much time longer. We're not sure whether they started at the same time. He just finished later or not. It's not very clear. But anyway, uh, he built also the house of the forest of Lebanon. The length thereof was 100 cubits and the breadth thereof 50 cubits. The height thereof 30 cubits upon four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams upon the pillars. These incredible pillars of these trees and the beams resting across them. And it was covered uh, with cedar above the beams uh, that lay on 45 pillars, 15 in a row. This place, by the way, uh, that we just haven't described there, this, this house of the forest of Lebanon, will be about 150 feet long by 75 feet wide by about 45 feet high. Now, having read what we just read... We have a question, and a lot of commentators debate this one, because we've got in verse 1, Solomon's own house is referenced, but verse 3 there, the house of the forest of Lebanon, and then in verse 8, we've got the house where he dwelt, but it's clearly described to us as the place where the prince, or the queen, lived. Remember he'd taken uh, this daughter of Pharaoh to be his wife, um, so the queen... Um, and also the harem and so on. So we've got seemingly three different buildings that are described for us. Now, just to try and put some explanation on this, um, this is uh, the comments uh, by Chuck Misler. He says, uh, The description of Solomon's palace in verses 1 to 12 raises a question as to whether one building or several were constructed. Probably one palace complex was built that contained several separate but interconnected buildings. And that seems to be, looking around the commentaries, what is the, the consensus here. So we haven't got... Some people think that the uh, House of the Forest of Lebanon was actually built up in Lebanon. It was like a holy retreat or an embassy, in a sense, in a foreign land. Um, but looking at this comment, um, this is from Albert Barnes. He says, Many have supposed that the buildings mentioned, in this portion we're looking at, First Kings 7, uh, were three entirely distinct and separate buildings. But it is perhaps best to consider, one, the house of 1 Kings 7.1 as the palace proper, Solomon's own dwelling house, as you like. Number two is the house um, in verse 2, which is the, 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 the house of the uh, forest of Lebanon, as the state apartments, if you like. And they're used probably for ceremonial purposes and meetings of state and so on. And then finally, uh, the third one is the house for Pharaoh's daughter, uh, as the, and the harem and so on, would have also uh, dwelt in that particular building. Thus, to regard these three groups of buildings as distinct, though interconnected, uh, and as together consisting what is elsewhere termed the king's house. So in chapter 9, verse 10, we have the reference to the king's house. So it seems we've just got one building, but made up of separate sections, piecing it all together. <clears throat> 
And the house of the forest of Lebanon was properly given its name because of the, of the extensive use of Lebanese cedar throughout. It was not located in Lebanon, but in Jerusalem. Uh, and it measured 150 feet, as I said earlier, by 75 by 45 feet. And the floor space uh, was 11,250 square feet, uh, which is four times larger than the temple. The temple square footage would have been about 2,700 square feet. The temple actually wasn't a particularly big building. But the temple, you see, wasn't to be a place where the congregation would go. It was designed to be this place where God would dwell, where these offerings and sacrifices would be brought, where once a year the high priest would come in before the Holy of Holies and so on. So the temple itself wasn't a massive building by any means. Very ornate and extremely costly because of all the gold that was there. And we'll talk a bit more about that in coming weeks and uh, as we build from this point. But the palace evidently served also as an armory. Uh, that seems to come out in uh, chapter 1017 and Isaiah 22 as well. And next to it, we have this kind of pillared colonnade, uh, kind of a covered walkway uh, surrounded by a patio that had its front, port- front porch and so on, and these supporting pillars. Uh, there were 45 side rooms forming three stories of 15 rooms each along the side of it. And there was also, First uh, Kings 7.7 7 refers to the throne room and the judgment hall. So all part of this place where Solomon would have had his own palace with these various sections for the various needs that they had. Um, so let me just take you through. Um, and there were windows in three rows and light was against light in three ranks. Quite what that means, I'm not sure. And all the doors and the posts were square. Uh, with the windows and light was against light in three ranks presumably either side we've got windows facing each other is what it seems to imply and he made a porch of pillars the length thereof was 50 cubits the breadth thereof 30 cubits the porch was before them and the other pillars and the thick beam uh, were before them then he made a porch for the throne uh, where he might judge even the porch of judgment and it was covered with cedar from one side of the floor to the other and his house where he had dwelt um, had another court within the porch which was, of, uh, which was of the like work. Solomon made also a house for Pharaoh's daughter whom he had taken to wife like unto this porch. So these are the three kind of separate parts of it now. And all these were of costly stones according to the measures of huge stones, sword with saws within and without even from the foundation unto uh, the coping and so on the outside toward the great court. And the foundation was of costly stones, even great stones, stones of ten cubits and stones uh, of eight cubits, and above were costly stones after the measures of huge stones and cedars. Now, what we're talking about here is stones that are 15 feet by 12, 12 feet. Now, these are the ones that just we're told were used for Solomon's house. Now, that's massive. You think of that, a stone, single stone, 15 foot by 12 foot. Um, now we know that some of Herod's stones that they discovered in Jerusalem were 20 feet long by 8 feet by 5 feet. Uh, and again, as I said earlier, some of them weighed over 100 tons. And the question is, how did they cut them so precisely? How did they move them? How did they get them in position? Um, but uh, for Solomon, not a problem. He was the wisest man that lived, so he had to figure that out. And clearly he did, because it's there, he did it. Um, but just an amazing um, feat of engineering that was uh, was done. So... And the great court roundabout was with the three rows of few stones and a row of cedar beams, both for the inner court of the house of the Lord and for the porch of the house. 
and we shall conclude there for this morning. Because the next section will then take us on and we'll get introduced to this man by the name of Hiring, who's uh, very skilled in working with brass and so on. And we'll see the work that he does in getting all these bits and pieces ready um, for use, not just for the temple itself, but for the sacrificial uh, work, for the things that the priests would need and so on. So we'll pick it up from there next week. Let's uh, bow our hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for these things that we can see. Father, we do thank you that your word tells us that we are a temple, that you are shaping us and molding us, that we are living stones, and that, Father, you are working and preparing us, Lord, for things that we are yet not even aware of, Lord, that we will find and we'll see in in the light of eternity. But, Father, help us now to understand that the trials, the problems, the issues, the difficulties we go through, Lord, it's part of your work and you're shaping us, Lord, molding us and making us what you want us to be. So, Father, thank you for these lessons. Thank you also, Lord, for the reminder that just as these stones that we've been seeing were just cut out of the world and then, Lord, transformed to something that would just bear your reflection, Lord, we thank you that that is the work you're doing in us. Lord, we just pray you continue. Lord, help us to to be patient. Lord, give us patience as we endure, as we... Lord, don't always understand the work you are doing. But Lord, help us to recognize that you have purchased us. You love us. And Lord, you will continue that work that you've begun in us. Lord, we have that great promise to hold on to. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.